but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul begins by giving thanks for this church that had caused him such grief. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 4, he writes, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here we go to Christ in prayer this morning. Father God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with overflowing thankfulness for the gift of your church. Lord, may we appreciate the gift that this body is to us. A gift from you. Not to be squandered or to be held selfishly. But to be given thanks for. And I pray, Father, that you would help me this morning in giving thanks for this church that you have allowed me to pastor. And I ask this in Jesus' name. As I read this passage this week, I just saw three things that I just said. This is a description of what is right with Corinth Baptist Church here in the cornfield of McQuaid, Kentucky right now. And so if you like to follow along in your outline, you know, I'm an outline person. What's right with our church? Right here in these verses, I find three things that Paul gives thanks for that I, as your pastor, can say I'm so thankful that these things are evident in our body. First of all, in verse 4, he gives thanks for the grace of God that's on display in the church at Corinth. Once again, remember the church at Corinth is a messy place. By chapter 5, we're going we're gonna to learn that they, they were reveling in the fact that they were accepting of a situation of gross sinful immorality in their midst. They were tolerating something that should not be tolerated among the people of God. So there was lots of mess in the church at Corinth, but he, he starts out here with a genuine place of thankfulness, saying, saying, I'm so thankful for the grace of God put on display in this body. That though we are wretched sinners, His grace abounds. As I was thinking about that, I thought back a couple of weeks to the fish fry event that, that we had and I saw such grace in that place. I don't know how many of you were able to be here, but the youth center was overflowing uh, with people. And yes, we were there to help raise a little money for our youth mission trip next summer. But more than that, it was really, I got the sense people were there just to support our young people. And we heard testimonies of what God is doing through our youth ministry and our youth band led us in worship. And it was just a beautiful night for God's people to be together and to eat a little too much and to have a lot of conversations 
and just to love on one another. And, and when I walked away from that Sunday night after all the tables and chairs were put away and people were lingering uh, together and just enjoying fellowship with one another, the thought in my mind is, God, help us to multiply this. Help us to multiply these moments where your grace is so abundant and we put all the things that don't really matter to the side and we just love on one another. We just enjoy time with one another. Part of that grace in our churches has been for so long a genuine heart for ministry to children and youth, to, to really seeing the next generation being discipled. And I'm so thankful. That's what led me to this church was seeing a heart that, uh, the heart of this church that cared about the next generation enough to make sacrifices. Four years ago, this church sacrificed to come and worship in a gymnasium so that our young people could have a place of their own. That was a sacrifice that we made, and I think, I think somewhere along the way we kind of forget some of what that was all about, but there's a, there's a moment where we come together and we, and we remind ourselves a part of God's grace in us has been a heart for seeing the next generation go far and fast for Jesus Christ and keeping that front and center. And even those that we have on staff were able to, to give thanks during our staff meeting this week for a church that loves young people enough to make the sacrifice. And church, I want you to know this. Having served five different churches, there are a lot of churches that talk about a love for young people. But this is the first one I've been a part of that actually demonstrates it through sacrifice. Thank you for that. Thank you for showing that kind of grace to the next generation. Secondly, verses 5 and 6, Paul gives thanks for the spiritual growth that he sees happening in the church. And again, remember once again, the church at Corinth is a rabid mess. I mean, they are a mess. And yet he's saying here in these verses, look at verse 5, he says, And I'm thankful that in every way you are enriched in him. That word enriched means edified, means built up. You're, you're growing in Christ in every way. In the midst of your messiness, there is spiritual growth taking place. And I'm, and I'm thankful for that, Paul says. I'm thankful for that. As I thought about these verses, I thought about the 15 adults who on Wednesday nights have made a commitment to uh, this nine-month discipleship process that we, uh, we were using a material from the Navigators, a, a strong discipleship group that's been making disciples for 30-plus years now. Uh, it's called the Navigators 2-7 Curriculum. It's nine-month commitment to walk through this material that not only helps us to be better disciples, but the goal is more than that. The goal is let's not just become better disciples ourselves. All kinds of Bible studies do that. But let's actually become disciple-making disciples. And by the way, church, if you look at the Great Commission rightly, you have to understand that if we're not producing disciple-making disciples... We're only doing half the job. Because if my discipleship ends with me, then what good is it? If it's not carrying on to the next generation, what good is it? And so for a church that loves children and youth ministry, we also recognize that in our adult ministries, we need to be about this God-given goal of making disciples. And I see that happening on Wednesday nights. I love the fact that 
that in the group of four men that I get to dwell with on Wednesday nights, that we are encouraging one another in the Word, that we are spending time together in prayer, that we are learning to share our testimonies and learning how to witness. But we're doing it all not just for us, because discipleship, like anything else in life, can become very me-centered. But we are learning these things so that we might train others. It's the biblical precedent that Paul gave to Timothy when he said, Go and find some faithful men and train them in the faith so that they might train others also. Train them up well, Paul, and then that they might pass it on to the next generation. Church, let's not forget we reside here in this place because someone else took discipleship seriously in our lives. For me, it was a Curtis Griffiths and a Tony Cecil and a Leonard Hornsby and my own mother and father and pastors who invested in my life and youth ministers that, that took that call seriously. And, and that is the call in the Christian life. And I see some in our midst who are taking seriously the call to go and make disciples. It's more than just being a disciple. I'm thankful for that. Thirdly, Paul says, I give thanks for the gifts. I give thanks for the gifts. And when you look at this book, it's interesting. By chapter 12 and 13 of this book, it's the gifts that are, that are being examined as the cause of a lot of problems. They're having a lot of problems over spiritual gifts, over discrepancies about speaking in tongues and, and when the gift of prophecy should be used. And there's a lot of disorder happening in their church gatherings related to spiritual gifts. But here at the beginning, he gives thanks for the fact that God has richly gifted the church at Corinth. And I have to say, church, that is so true of us. Now to whom much is given, much is expected. But you look just at this little church here in the middle of the cornfield, this immense gifting in several different areas. We talked about this in our staff meeting this week. It is amazing the amount of musical gifting that resides in this church. Now this morning, one of my favorite things happened. I actually asked Grant just to lead solo this morning. That was not to push anybody else out of the scene, but there's just moments when it's good for my heart just to have that experience of the way he leads us when he's, when he's solo. But you look around, you see so many that God has planted in this church that have a gifting toward leading others in worship. And we benefit from that, don't we, church? We have so many in this church that have the gift of teaching that's talked about in Ephesians chapter 4, that, that it's not just on the pastor, but there are many in this place who are investing the word of God and others who have that spiritual gift of teaching and the body benefits from that gift. But it's not just those prominent gifts that we often think about. When I look around here on Sunday morning and I see those of you that have the gift of encouragement that come up to your pastor and make sure that you give me a hug every Sunday and you speak a word of encouragement into my life. And I watch you engaging in conversations with others and you're making new folks feel welcome and you're helping them find Sunday school classes and you're, and you're showing them where the coffee and donuts are and you're offering to, them to come and sit with you in worship. These are things that you're doing as a part of your spiritual gift of encouragement. And now look at what's happening outside of these walls through the body. Gifts of mercy that are being exercised in our community. Gifts of evangelism that are being utilized in workplaces. 
We could go on and on with the gifts that are being utilized, but we need to be reminded this morning of the source of the gifts. This is what will cause us to use our gifts rightly when you remember where they came from. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, But thanks be to God. So when I say to you, church, this morning, I appreciate you, what I'm ultimately saying is, but thanks be to God. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and that could be translated, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. Keep allowing that grace to be manifested in this place. Keep seeking the spiritual growth of one another and keep using those gifts for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. That's what it means to be the church. And we do it all in a heart of gratitude toward God, saying, thank you, God. See, here's the problem, church. There's a place where the gratitude that should rule and reign in the heart of God's children gets pushed to the side. And so while we, I wanted to begin this morning by talking about what is so good and right and God-honoring in our church, I also believe I need to address a question that many of you have asked. Some have asked it of it directly to me within the last two weeks. And it's, the heart, it's a question that's on the heart of many. And you may not agree with what I'm going to set before you this morning. But I'm going to seek to be led by the scriptures in addressing the question of what is wrong with our church. Many of you have come and asked, what's wrong with our church? People are leaving. What's wrong with our church? There seems to be a different kind of of a spirit here than there was before. What's wrong with our church? Why is everybody fighting and quarreling over stuff that doesn't seem to make any difference? What's wrong with our church? If you go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is addressing here what is wrong with the church in first century Corinth. And I think it's so very similar to the things that we're dealing with in these days. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 19. Paul writes, Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. Notice his tenderness. All for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear. And I don't know how you think about the Apostle Paul but he is not a scaredy cat. He is a bold and courageous man of God. And yet two times in this passage he says, I fear. I fear that perhaps when I come I may not find you. I may find you not as I wish. And that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear the second time there. I fear 
that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Could we pause for prayer once again, church? God, I pray that you would give me grace in these moments. Share some of the very same apprehensions that the Apostle Paul had for the church at Corinth. Or some of the same apprehensions, some of the same fears that I have for our body here. That were we allowed to allow these things to rule and reign among us, they would only breed destruction. Help me, Father, to walk through this with great patience and careful instruction to say no more than what your word is saying and certainly no less. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's wrong with our church? What's wrong with our church is what's wrong with every church. It's filled with sinners like you and me. And what it means to be a sinner is that we live out our lives in rebellion against God until his grace is allowed to rule and reign in us. So how's that demonstrated in the life of the church? First of all, we are a people who are given to grumbling. Hasn't this always been true of God's people? When you go all the way back to God's chosen people in the Old Testament days, they've been delivered from 400 years plus of slavery in Egypt by the mighty hand of God who brought plagues upon their adversaries so that they might be set free. God has raised up a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery. And by the time they're a day away from their slavery, they're already grumbling. The Old Testament uses the word murmuring, which is so descriptive of what takes place. It's not days removed from their slavery. It's not days into their freedom that they're already grumbling against God and saying things like, we were better off in Egypt. We were better off in slavery than out here following this idiot Moses who doesn't seem to know what he's doing. I mean, he leads us out, and now we're here at the, at the border of the Red Sea, right? You remember the story? They got the Red Sea on one side, and they got the Egyptian army that's bearing down on them on the other, and they're grumbling until Moses sticks the staff in the water and the Red Sea parts, and they walk through on dry, land, on dry ground and look in the rearview mirror and see the mightiest army in the world at that time being crushed under the waves of the sea. And you would think in that moment that the grumbling would stop. But it's not days later as they're wandering in the wilderness and they are lacking a water source that they begin grumbling again. Moses, did you bring us out here in the desert to die? And then once again, 
Moses takes that staff that he stuck into the Red Sea and he strikes a rock with it so that water flows out enough to feed the million plus Israelites that are traveling in that desert with him. And you would think in that moment, seeing the Red Sea split wide open and them crossing on dry ground and then seeing the rock split open and producing enough water for a million folks, you would think in those moments that the grumbling would cease. But it doesn't cease because the sinful heart is bent toward grumbling. James in chapter 4 of the book of James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Isn't this true? What causes fights and quarrels among us? For those who are asking what's wrong with our church and you're referencing the fighting and the quarreling and the bickering and the backbiting that takes place, isn't it so true Isn't it so true that it always, always comes from a heart that is warring with sinful passions and desires? And at the end of the day, what James is saying is, here's why we fight and quarrel with one another. Because I wanted something and I didn't get it. I wanted a leadership position and I didn't get it. I wanted this particular ministry and I didn't get it. I wanted the pastor to preach this kind of sermons and I didn't get it. I wanted the youth ministry to be able to do this and they couldn't do it. And so then I'm, and I war and I fight. And inside me, this anger wells up that Jesus says it's just like murder. And it's all because we allow the flesh, the sinful heart, to reign and rule. When the great solution to grumbling is so clear, church. The great solution to grumbling is gratitude. At what moment do you see the Israelites coming before the living God and saying, we are so thankful, God, that you split that Red Sea wide open so that we could escape from the Egyptians. We are so thankful that you split that rock wide open so that we could have water. We're so thankful that in those 40 years that we traveled in the wilderness, our shoes didn't wear out, our clothes were maintained. We're so thankful for all the things that you have worked in our lives. You see, that's what gratitude does. Gratitude drives the grumbling heart out. It's the only thing that can because the sinful heart is always bent toward grumbling. I know that because your pastor is the A number one grumbler. I know it. I know this sinful heart all too well. And I allowed grumbling to rule and reign in my life for far too long. And every once in a while, you want to know what's true? Every once in a while, that grumbling heart still rears its ugly head. And I forget to walk in gratitude. You say, well, that sounds real pie in the sky by and by. Just be thankful and everything will be good, right? Just ignore all the problems and issues. No, that's not what I'm saying. 
But I'm saying that the heart of gratitude begins to recognize that the things about which we grumble are so much less important than the things about which we should be grateful. It puts things in perspective. It's perspective that we need. Secondly, church, just like our namesake, here in 2 Corinthians 12, we are people who are given to gossip. And I know immediately we go, oh, not us. That's somebody else. Gossip is always somebody else's problem, isn't it? Inevitably, gossip is always somebody else's problem. But I love the way that Matthew Mitchell described gossip. He wrote a book called Resisting Gossip. I would recommend it to you. He said, sinful gossip is bearing bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. And here's why I like that definition. Because it recognizes the source of gossip. See, see, we're always concerned about the source material of gossip, what's being talked about. We forget that the real problem is where it comes from, that it comes out of a heart that's wrapped up in bitterness, that's wrapped up in envy, that's wrapped up in selfish desires. That's always where gossip comes from. It's a poison. James says the tongue is a fire among the members of the body. And you think about fire can be used for two very different things. Fire can be used to warm us up and fire can be used to burn us down. And so we think about gossip. And sometimes we think, well, is it really that big of a deal? Or we'll make excuses like, well, it's true, ain't it? By the way, it can still be sinful, deadly gossip and actually be true. What's the motive for which it's shared? Is the motive to build up or to burn down? And by the way, here's what I learned in my own sinful heart in a time when I was very good at using my tongue to burn others down. The reason that we use our sinful tongues to burn others down is because we're seeking to elevate ourselves. The reason that I used my tongue to burn others down was because I didn't feel very good about myself. And I thought that if I could make someone else look small, I could look bigger. When all along the call of the Christian life is to make ourselves small, to make ourselves less, that he might be greater. Proverbs 26, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no whisperer, that could be translated gossip, by the way. Where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. As charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. Isn't that true? They go down into the inner parts of the body where they poison it. I know I added that last part. But if you read the rest of Proverbs 26, that's the pattern that you begin to see is that gossip is a poison. It is a cancer among the parts of the body. And we're talking about the body of the church here. Gossip is a cancer that will destroy. And we have allowed it to rule and reign in our midst for far too long, church. We have feasted upon those delicious morsels and acted as if they were not making us spiritually fat to the point of death. We must root out this cancer. You say, how do I do that? 
Number one, you don't listen to it. Someone comes to bring you a bad report about someone else or something that's going on in the church. The first thing you need to say is, hold up right there. Have you talked to that person about what you're getting ready to share with me? This is instruction from the Word of God that I'm giving you. Have you talked with that other person? Have you, have you talked with our leaders about your concern in this situation? Have you, have you gone to this individual and had a face-to-face conversation? And if they say no, then you say, well, let's go do that together. You say, that's really scary. Yeah, it is. But cancer surgery is also scary, folks. One of our members mentioned to me last week a lady who went to the hospital with just some, some minor things going on in her body and found out that the next day she was going to have to have cancer surgery and she was scared to death. And folks, we ought to be scared to death about what gossip will do to this body. We ought to see it as the cancer it is and we ought to have no tolerance for it. Any more than you would have tolerance for cancer in your body and you'd go, oh, well, that's no big deal, just a little cancer. No, it'll kill you if it's not removed. And we ought to love one another enough not to listen and to go and address the issues that need to be addressed. We are given to grumbling. We're given to gossip. I want to show you one more thing, though. In this list that it gives in verse 20, he ends that list with the words, I'm afraid that I will find among you Conceit and disorder. The word conceit there references a a me-centered mentality that if it's allowed to rule and reign in the church will cause destruction. It's really related to the idea of greed. That we're given to greediness. And when we think about greed, we oftentimes think about someone who wants what others have. That's the way that we tend to think about greed. If somebody's greedy, they're wanting to get what other people have. But there's also an aspect of greed where I just want to keep what I have. Don't mess with my stuff. Don't get into my playground. I'm going to keep it all right here. And there's a place where when we allow greed to rule and reign, when we allow that self-centered mentality to rule and reign, especially in the church, It brings destruction. John Calvin said about this passage that Paul enumerates the vices which chiefly prevailed among the Corinthians, almost all of which proceeded from the same source. This is why, uh, notice the source here. For had not everyone been devoted to self, they would never have contended with each other. They would never have envied one another. There would have been no slandering among them, thus the sum and substance of the first catalog, and that's where he's referencing the catalog of sins there in in 2 Corinthians 12. The sum and substance is this, it's want of love. It's lack of love because self-love and ambition prevailed. So here's what you can do. You can take this list in 1 Corinthians 12 and you can put it side by side with a list you're more familiar of in 1 Corinthians 13. We love 1 Corinthians 13. It's the love chapter, right? Every wedding you hear this chapter read and it's a, it's a perfectly fine par, uh, chapter to read at weddings, but it's so much greater than that. 
This is a description of what God's love is like. And here Paul is basically able to show us a comparison between self-love, which is quarrelsome, and God's love, which is patient. Self-love, which is jealous, and God's love, which is never envious. Self-love, which is fueled by anger because you messed in my playground. And God's love, which is not irritable. Self-love is hostile and will make war against others. God's love is kind. Self-love is slanderous and will tear others down with the tongue. God's love is not resentful. Self-love is gossipful. But God's love rejoices with the truth. Notice, rejoices with the truth. Because you can speak the truth in a gossipful way that tears down. This is rejoicing. Rejoicing in the truth. Self-love is conceited. God's love is never arrogant. And finally, self-love is disorderly. What we find about disorder in the scriptures is that it always leads to destruction. Paul addresses disorder in the church at Corinth in chapters 13, 14, and 15 of that first letter. He addresses the issue of disorder and he's making the point that God is a God of order God is a God of orderliness. And then in the church, there should be this kind of orderliness that takes place because disorder will only lead to destruction. But when we walk in God's love, it never ends. It never fails. It never falls short. Proverbs 28, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be Enriched. In fact, church, maybe that's a question we need to begin to ask. As someone begins to stir up some strife, hey, brother, are you trusting in the Lord? Sister, are you trusting in God for this thing you're so worked up about? I think it's a great question coming right out of the scripture. So, what do we do, church? If you buy even an ounce of what I've put before you this morning, what do we do? Second Corinthians 7, Paul says, as it is, that as it is, not as we want it to be. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. And so here's two paths we might take today. There is a path of worldly grief that could hear the things brought from the word of God this morning and simply walk away with guilt. Or simply walk away with bitterness. And what will that produce? It will only produce more death and destruction. If we walk away from these moments without walking in a godly grief that's characterized by repentance, 
Repentance is the result of God's kindness toward us, that he has shown us the truth of his word. He has shown us like a mirror that we might see the reality of our condition and run to him for salvation. And that we would see those things and that godly grief would be exemplified through repentance, through turning from sin and trusting in Christ all the more. So which path will we walk today, church? In the days to come, will we walk only in worldly grief of guilt and bitterness? Or will we walk in a godly grief of repentance and faith? So the last section there on your outline. What will be the response of our church? How will we respond? Well, we just talk these things up to another sermon, heard that one, check off the box, now we're good to go. Or will we respond as people of faith? You say, what does that look like? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11 is the sum total, not just of these two books, but I think of our response to these kinds of moments. He writes, finally, brothers, wrapping it all up in, in one last statement, finally, brothers, rejoice. There's a place in which we could stop right there and that would be adequate. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Rejoice in what you have in the gospel. Rejoice in all the good things that God is doing in your midst. Rejoice in all these things. But he says more for a purpose. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Church, isn't that what we desire? If we don't desire the God of love and peace to be with us, I believe it proves that we don't belong to Him in the first place. Our greatest desire should be that His presence would dwell among us and that it would be so in love and peace, that we would know fellowship with Him. The Apostle Paul said, My greatest goal in life is to know Christ and Him crucified. Is that our desire as well? Let me summarize the response from first, Second Corinthians thirteen eleven in these ways. First of all, church, we've got to begin rejoicing in the good. And I'm preaching this to your pastor as much as to anyone in the room, because I can get so heavy burdened with all the things that aren't happening that I don't recognize the things that are. I can get so wrapped up in the places where change is needed that I forget to recognize that the change is happening. That the most important change is not the structures of our church or how we do this, that, or the other. The most important change that takes place in the life of the church is in individuals. It's, it's when a man comes to the first point of having a passion for the Word of God and begins to read this as the living Word that it is and his life is radically changed. That he becomes the husband he never was and the father that he never was. He begins sharing the Word of God like he never did. He's transformed from the inside out. By the renewing of his mind, he is transformed. And his life becomes that spiritual act of worship. Rejoice in the good. Church, this is remedy number one for us. That we would begin to rejoice in the good things that are happening in our midst. To have eyes for the winds. 
have eyes for the places where we see the grace of God being put on display. And when you see someone walking in grace in this body, that you go to them and you encourage them. Brother, thank you for setting that example. Sister, thank you for sitting with that new person. Hey, thank you for the way you handled that discipline issue with my kid. Do you see it rejoicing together in the good? I've left an intentional blank in the next one for this purpose. He says, aim for restoration. I meditated on, on that particular phrase quite a bit this week. And here's, here's the only thing that I know about restoration biblically. This is the only thing I know about restoration. If we're going to aim for restoration and follow this command, the only thing I know about restoration is you cannot have restoration apart from repentance. You can't. It is utterly impossible that you will have biblical restoration apart from repentance. Now you can sweep it under the rug. You can paint a new coat of paint over it. You can make it look as well as you want to. But at the end of the day, what did Jesus say about that? It's a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. And the only way that you get beyond the whitewashed tomb where sins of gossip and grumbling and greed are scraped under the rug and we pretend like it never happened, the only way that we move beyond that as a people is through the pathway of repentance. And so what will that be for you? Because repentance can't just be a general thing. We're so quick to come before God sometimes. God, you know I sin. You know what my sins are. So just forgive me of all my sins. Sometimes repentance needs to be very specific. God, I've been a grumbler. God, I've been a gossip. God, I've been greedy over my playground and not wanting anybody to mess in my stuff. These are specific acts of repentance that are necessary if there would be a moving forward. Or we just keep riding the sin cycle over and over again. Final response from the end of that verse 11. We learn more and more to rest in His grace. Here's what I mean. When you look at what he's saying there in verse 11. He says, agree, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. By the way, let me just say this. Agreeing with one another doesn't mean we have the same mind about every issue. There can be great diversity in this body and yet a unity in the gospel that supersedes all our differences. But that's only when the grace of God's allowed to rule and reign and not our personal preferences. Maybe that was too much. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That's a promise, church. That's a promise from our God. And it's a place of resting in His grace, knowing full well that we are wretched sinners in need of His unmerited favor in our lives. That He has chosen to rescue us from our own sinful selves. That the ultimate problem in our lives is not out there in the culture somewhere. 
It's not with our spouse or with our children that the greatest problem hindering my life and yours is that my heart was captured by sin and needs to be rescued. And the continuing growth in Christ that takes place in us is His continuing rescue of us day after day after day. And that doesn't mean that I spend my life working harder in order to get the sin out. If you haven't figured it out by now, that never fixes the problem. The harder that you work to get the sin out, the worse it becomes. The more that you will try in your flesh to stop the grumbling and the gossip, the more you will grumble and gossip. Because what's needed is not just a mouth change, but a heart change. And that only happens when we rest in His grace, the gift of God in Jesus Christ. So let me leave you with two prayers for our church. 2 Corinthians, last verse. Notice how Paul prays for this church he loves so much. And this will be my prayer for us. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Once again, church, isn't that what we want? Even more than more butts in the seat and more bucks in the offering plate. Even more than getting our felt needs met. Even more than singing the songs that we like. Listening to Bible studies that we enjoy. At the end of the day, if your heart has been gripped by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, I cannot help but believe these are the things that your heart cries out for. God, give me more of your grace. Show me more of your love and increase our fellowship with one another. Then may we have that beautiful biblical koinonia, that's the word there, fellowship, koinonia, which is this, this picture of, of a choir that is singing various parts and yet the same song. That there is a unity in diversity where folks from radically different backgrounds, with radically different makeups, and with radically different opinions on so many things come together in the body of Christ in a unity that cannot be broken because it's held together by the power of God. Do you notice that the triune God is within this prayer? It's the grace of the Son of God, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That the only way these things happen is when the living God comes down and manifests Himself in His church in such a way that what is impossible for sinners left to themselves takes place because His grace abounds. Because His love rules. And because He creates a fellowship in us that would be impossible otherwise. is my prayer for us. And so how do we pray toward this end? As a grumbling, gossipy, greedy people. And if you don't recognize that in your own heart, either you've walked farther with the Lord than your pastor has, and I pray that's true, or we're just not being honest with ourselves. 